Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am Amy Gunn, and today I am joined by Megan, Erica, Elizabeth, and Liz. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hello. Today, we are going to talk about being good listeners. Recently, I had the opportunity to interview a journalist, Kate Murphy. She's written a book called You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters. I bought the book. I read the book. I thought prior to reading the book, I was a darn good listener considering my profession and how much I've always preached about being an active listener. But I tell you, I learned some things. And I had the wonderful opportunity to spend some time with Kate and to really ask her some questions to help me better understand not only what was written in her book, but how to put it into practice. So I thought this would be a good episode for our listeners. Hopefully they're listening. And of course, as Kate pointed out when we were talking, the hot irony of this is that we're talking about listening, of course, but there's no other way to do it. As attorneys, I see two big categories. Number one, being a listener in terms of client interviews, course depositions, arguments, that type of thing. But also, we want to be a good speaker so our audience, namely the judge or the jury, we want them to be good listeners to when we're speaking. So there are techniques in this book that I'm hoping to talk about today that we can all benefit from. I have to start, of course, though, with one of my favorite stories in the book. Kate interviewed tons and tons of people, scientists, folks in the CIA, hostage negotiators, people whose job it is to be good listeners. And she talked to a trial attorney, and this is my favorite. She says, and then there were the people who told me that they were good listeners, though their claims were often undercut by the fact that they were talking to me on their mobile phones while driving. Quote, I'm a better listener than most people, said a trial attorney in Houston, returning my phone call in his car during rush hour traffic. Wait, hold on a second. I have another call. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds, that sounds pretty familiar. Or sometimes when we go to cocktail parties with other lawyers, you know, we've got someone and this is reminiscent of the New Yorker cartoon where the guy holding a glass of wine at the cocktail party says, behold, as I guide you through our conversation to my narrow area of expertise, being self-aware, I think is the key to being a good listener. And one of the descriptions that Kate gives of a very clear example about how to be a good listener is what she calls the shift support response. An example in the book about the shift support response is John says, my dog got out last week and it took three days to find him. Mary's response, our dog is always digging under the fence, so we can't let him out unless he's on a leash. That's the what is it, ladies? Shift. Got it. All right. How about this one? My dog got out last week and it took three days to find him. Mary says, oh, no. Where did you finally find him? Support. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's really not hard when you think about it like that. It's very much about listening in taking that information and continuing to be interested in it and to show interest. And I'm thinking, man, this is perfect for not only just having a good conversation at a cocktail party, but... Obviously, in voir dire, 
obviously in a deposition when you have a set of questions to ask, but are you really listening to the answer? I know we've talked about this on the podcast before. I love it when someone comes in with a list of their questions and they ask them, have no regard for the answer and keep moving on. So that's an example, a very easy example of the difference between a shift response and a support response. And I started thinking about this and wondered whether there could be a hybrid. I wondered whether there could be a momentary shift, some kind of relating story, and then back to a support. So for example, on John's question in the book about the dog, he says, my dog got out last week and it took three days to find him. My thought would be to say, oh, I have a dog. Did you find him? So there's the momentary relation to say, oh, I have a dog too, maybe makes it more interesting to my partner, but then immediately send it back and say what happened to your dog. Maybe I thought of it because I really try hard. I think that's how I try to be in a random conversation with someone, whether it's a person at a cocktail party or a client at intake or, I mean, maybe even voir dire. And I asked Kate that in the interview and she said, you have to earn it. And I think that's right. But Liz, you know, we were talking before the episode about this a little bit to prepare. And you'd mentioned this idea of client intake and client counseling. Do you find yourself maybe not putting these terms of shift and support on it, but do you find yourself using that technique? I do. And I think it's important, especially in the situations that we're in, whether it's in front of a jury, in front of a judge, or in front of a client, this isn't a typical conversation I might have at a cocktail party. Because this is a specific conversation where I'm asking someone to choose me we're in a small competition, whether it's with our opposing counsel or with other attorneys that we're competing for cases for. We're trying to have the, uh, the, the partner in the conversation choose us. And so I think at least my feeling is and my strategy in this is that I want to be an active listener. I want to be a good listener. I want to make sure that I'm getting all the detail and that I'm supporting the person speaking with me, particularly in client intake. That's really important to make sure not just factually that you have all of the details, but to show your client that you're thinking about lots of different issues and that you're trying to get all the facts and, and something maybe they didn't think was very important. You're going to draw out of them. I, I think the clients appreciate that when they're asked really detailed questions. It tells them that this is a person that is listening to me. I'm thinking about med mal cases where how many times have we been in client intakes with a potential client who has a potential medical malpractice claim where they say something like, the doctor wasn't listening to me. Yes. The doctor wasn't listening. And so I want to make sure that they know, they really know that I am listening to them. I hear them. I want to know their story. But at the same time, and maybe this comes in later into the conversation, maybe after we've been talking 15, 20, 30 minutes, I try to find a way to make a connection with them. And that might be where that shift slash relate situation happens. And so I think of situations where maybe I have a client who is an immigrant 
who's from another country. I'll try to find a way to work in the fact that my mom is an immigrant. My mom and I came to the United States in 1994. We share this common bond now. I've had several clients now working in Missouri. We're in the Midwest. We have clients who are in more rural parts of the states, some farmers. I try to find a way to work in the fact that my grandpa was a farmer. It's a way to make that bond, that connection, a reminder of them that I am a person at the end of the day, and I'm hopefully I'm someone you can trust. And maybe because we share this common background, I am, am more trustworthy to you. And so choose me. And so that happens in client intakes. And I think a lot of that also sometimes ends up bleeding into voir dire when we have that opportunity to have direct conversations with the jury, because we know once trial starts, the moment that the jury is sat, the final 12 and whoever the alternates are, we don't get to converse with them anymore. We don't get to hear what their thoughts are anymore. We can't have an actual conversation with them. It's literally just us talking to them. So you want to have an opportunity to build some sort of connection from the get-go. You got to earn it. It can't be the first question where you immediately try to bring the conversation back to you, but at least having an opportunity to try to work it in somewhere is really important. And that's something that if you find that you have that opportunity, you shouldn't pass it up. I totally agree with that. And to piggyback off that point, I don't know if Kate would disagree with me in this, but I think that, you know, it is good to maybe minimize the amount of shifting you do. But I do think a certain amount of it has value because you don't want to just be a brick wall that someone is talking at and asking you maybe questions that are pertinent to what you're saying. But if at the end of the day, you're like, okay, what did I receive out of that? Aside from talking about myself, I think to build meaningful relationships, you have to have a little bit of both. Well, I think the point of the support response is not just to go on with your battery of questions, but it's to like have a conversation that isn't about you. It's about the other person. So you're listening and asking questions in response to what they're saying, not necessarily relating it to yourself. And I think maybe that's sort of the issue that it causes is, you know, that person thinks they're sharing this really intimate story with you, something that really horrible that happened to them. And you're like, yeah, you know relate to it in some way. And that's not really maybe what they're looking for in those moments. They just want to tell you what happened to them. So I think that you just have to be sensitive to it and not try to bring it back to yourself, which I don't think is what you're saying. But I do think that's the point of the response. You never want to one up someone's negative response or trauma or something like that. Amy, when thinking about this listening tool, I guess. It makes me think about something that you're really good at. And it seems that you use the support response in networking. And I've watched you do this in, in several conversations with people you know nothing about or you're meeting for the first time. And you are so good at listening and then asking them questions or finding out more about them. And that person walks away from that conversation and, you know, you're very engaged and personable and whatever. And I think they usually walk away thinking like, Amy Gunn thinks I'm awesome. <laughs> and I've watched you do this before. It's a way to connect with people through listening and making the conversation about them. And quite frankly, depending on the scenario, if you are in a networking situation or a business situation, that might be your goal is for that person to walk away and have a really good feeling from the conversation. You know, it can be really useful. And I've seen you do it in the networking context. So it's funny about that. And thank you for that. But what's kind of funny about that is I think in order to 
diminish any social anxiety that there is for walking to a party, maybe that you don't really know a whole lot of people, who am I going to talk to? I have always told myself the best way to have a good conversation with someone is to ask questions and to ask about their family or ask about what cases they're working on, to engage that person, to get them talking, because then I don't have to talk as much. Maybe it's partly being a more private person. Maybe it's social anxiety, one of those things. But the other thing that I thought of was, let's say you had a conversation with someone and it's a year later and that person's name comes up. How often do you remember what was said versus how you felt after the conversation was over, right? So do you remember what was said? Not very often. If it was particularly bad. <laughs> right. You either walk away thinking, I just didn't enjoy that conversation because he or she wasn't listening. They're taking up all the conversation or whatever it is. Or you walk away feeling like, oh, that was a really good, positive conversation. I have no idea what we talked about. But I remember feeling good about that person. And I think that's part and parcel with what we're trying to be taught here, which is, being a good listener makes people feel better about you because you're a good listener, but it also provides you with information. And maybe it's information that doesn't mean that much to you as you walk away, but maybe you've learned something really important about that person or a fact you didn't know. Bringing it to our work, bringing it to a deposition, being a good listener is critical when you're deposing someone, because so many times you've got your outline, of course, we're not talking about a script, but maybe you've got your bullet points that you want to cover and you're two hours into the deposition, you've barely looked at it because all you've been doing is listening to the answers and they've taken you down totally different paths that have revealed a whole lot of good information that maybe you hadn't even thought about yet. So it's twofold. And I find that in even in depositions, the better listener you are, the better information you get. And some of it is your style, of course, but even in a cross-examination situation in a deposition, not a hostile witness, but the defendant or defense expert, man, if you're really listening to what they're saying and following up on what they're saying, even if you're taking them to task with what they're saying, they're going to talk to you. So listening is so important, not only for the person you're listening to and to show respect and to really just put your best foot forward to that person. So they walk away thinking, you know, that was a good conversation. She's a good person. But also it is so beneficial to you as the listener because of what you're learning. I don't think I ever thought about that critically. And it's been pretty much all I've been thinking about since. <laughs> that's good or bad. <laughs> it's interesting for me that you bring up depositions because especially as an attorney, well, how, oh my God, how long have I been out now? Um, I am approaching my seventh year of practice. It's like you're talking about being out of jail. Oh, <laughs> but, but it's interesting. And this might be targeted more towards younger lawyers, especially when I first started taking depositions. When I watched other people do it, it just seemed so seamless, so natural. The conversation just flowed. And I was so nervous in taking my first couple of depositions about having too long of an awkward pause 
after an answer was provided to me. It made me think if I take too long to ask a question, I'm going to look stupid or I'm going to look unprepared or I'm going to look incompetent, whatever. And so I was so nervous about what is my time limit? It also felt like a chess game where I have a clock, <laughs> I have a timer on how long I can take before I uh, run out of time to ask my next question. But now having taken multiple depositions, having practiced as long as I have, I realized there's a lot of benefit. There's a lot that you can get out of just sort of quiet time. And sometimes that may mean that the witness thinks that they're done, but then because you have given them extra time, they will continue to give you an answer and they'll continue talking. Or in the listening context, bringing it back to what we've been talking about in the listening context, it means that I have time to digest what they have just told me to fully try to comprehend everything that they have just given me and then come up with my next question. It shows that I am active listening. And I think that that means that my next question may it takes a little longer for me to get there, but it's going to be a better question. And so that's something that I've taken away both from my years of practice now, but also from listening to Kate Murphy's interview is that quiet time, it's not a bad thing, especially within the context of what we do. Being the newest attorney here, I can fully relate to that. And I feel like I am still in it sometimes. I'm learning. I can tell with each deposition how to get better. But I actually had the weird, unique experience of having all of my depositions for the first six or seven or even eight months be over Zoom before I ever took an in-person deposition. And after taking my first in-person deposition, I noticed a huge difference in how I felt afterwards and how I read the transcript afterwards. I just felt like my in-person deposition went so much better. And I did some thinking about it as we we're, you know, kind of discussing this episode beforehand. And I think it's because it's so easy on Zoom to read your outline that you had prepared on the computer screen as you have it sitting right next to the Zoom window. Whereas in person, I'm not staring at my outline the whole time. I'm not thinking about what am I going to ask next before I even hear their answer to the previous question. I'm more engaged in seeing their reaction and reacting to what they actually say instead of asking what I want to ask next because this is how I imagine the conversation going in my mind. And I just think it is much more effective for me personally when I take a deposition in person over Zoom for that reason. And I know something that we also discussed earlier, when you're doing a deposition on Zoom, I'm so worried about what I'm looking like on that screen. I'm looking at myself. I'm not looking at their reaction. And uh, for all those reasons, I just really prefer in person. I'm just a much better listener in that context. Kate also wrote an article on that issue, on the Zoom issue. Now, her book was written pre-pandemic, but it's still so timely because one of her key points is that with more technology, and she's not anti-technology, she'll tell you, but with more technology, we're becoming further and further away from people. And loneliness goes hand in hand with not being listened to, not having someone to have a real meaningful conversation with. So after the pandemic, she wrote an article in the New York Times called Why Zoom is Terrible. And obviously, she's not talking about Zoom depositions per se. But the point of the article is because of the pixelation and because of, you know, you're over a screen, you can't really 
see people's reactions very well. You can't see the color change in their skin. You can't see their eyes very well. There might be a delay. So you're not really giving it all, you're not really setting up yourself for success for being the best listener you can be. Because so much of good listening directly in a conversation, whether it's deposition or voir dire or closing argument, is meeting eyes with someone and taking their temperature, if you will, to see if they are, are they listening to you? Are they paying attention to you? So I really thought about that. And she says, even turning off the video, doing a phone interview is even better than a Zoom video. And Megan, same girl. I look at myself constantly. I'm not proud of it. I can't even help myself. I'm looking at myself. I'm looking at everybody else. I'm looking at everybody's background. I'm trying to figure out why on earth they would have that background. Why do they have that book right there? What's that cat doing? I mean, all <laughs> of it. I'm not listening on a Zoom. Well, okay. If it's a depot, I'm really just got my eye on one square and trying really hard. But if it's a meeting, forget it. I'm not a good listener on a Zoom meeting. Does anybody else have that same experience? All right, so I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Let's go. Liz often reminds me that the devil needs no more advocates, but here we go. The devil is not in need of any legal representation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I read the article, and let me put a disclaimer on this. When Amy sent around the information about the topic today, I ordered the book. Being a better listener is something I feel will be a lifelong struggle for me because I am a super extrovert with supercharged FOMO and I get in a conversation and I'm so excited and I want to tell you everything that I think. (laughs) My progress throughout my time practicing has been to try to learn to shut my mouth, which all has to do with listening. But when the pandemic started and there was kind of this debate about, can we go forward with this deposition in person? Can we go forward with this item of our work, you know, on Zoom, whether it's a hearing or, you know, some other meeting? And I was getting so frustrated because by and large, defense attorneys were saying, oh, well, I can't take that on Zoom. I have to do that deposition in person. And I know I've mentioned this on the podcast. I kept thinking about Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, that I had just read. And I was thinking that they were being so grandiose about their ability to see these subtle nuances, you know, that you might miss on Zoom and how much that would affect their taking the deposition or being able to influence what the testimony would be or asking questions. Without a doubt, I miss the energy that you feel from people, which I'm sure affects your listening. Those things you kind of miss on Zoom. But I thought it was so interesting that she talks about in the article how, you know, certain journalists will only do phone interviews. And I think she described it. This is what makes her a good writer because I remember the visualizations from her article. She described it as if someone's mouth is next to your ear talking in your (laughs) ear. And I was like, ooh, it creeps me (laughs) out. But yeah, if someone was standing there next to you, like, speaking into your ear. I mean, that's such an interesting way to think about a phone call. And I realized that on Zoom depots, if I'm taking the depot, especially an expert, I don't look at them. I'm not watching them. I'm looking down and like I'm a tactile learner. So I'm like doodling or tracing words to help me engage in listening 
to what they're saying and I am distracted. So that is something that I've been doing subconsciously and she called me out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, I think you can adjust and reorient yourself and, you know, kind of save, you know, a hard line like this must be done in person or, you know, we can't do this thing remotely for when maybe it's really important. And you think the balance of what you'll get out of having that extra leg up on listening versus maybe the human cost that it'll take to get there or, you know, you'll have to schedule differently or whatever. I thought that it was interesting that her argument was like, to me, it read like pro phone call, anti Zoom. And I found that I'm very visual and I like to see people's lips move when they're talking because it helps me process when I'm hearing making the whole mask thing very difficult for me, but that's an (laughs) aside. So on phone calls, I find myself zoning out and having a harder time listening versus just on Zoom. Obviously, I think in person is probably like everyone would agree that that's probably better if possible. But, you know, obviously during the pandemic, that wasn't possible, but no one was really suggesting, you know, phone depositions. That sounds very difficult. So, you know, as someone who obviously thinks listening is very important, I was intrigued by the idea that she thinks it's easier to listen on a phone call because I don't have that experience. I think it's harder. Think about right now, as we're podcasting, the five of us are sitting at the table. Whoever I'm responding to or like watching you guys for who has the next comment, if I closed my eyes and I just listened to what we were all saying, I wouldn't have the visual cues of who's talking next. Like you said, Elizabeth, like watching someone's mouth speak, like the inflections in their face that they're adding. So that's really interesting to think about, especially if like, say you take the first part of the depot on Zoom and then you're like, I'm turning off their video and like, see how it goes. I just had that happen. I was defending a client depot and the bandwidth was so low that they ended up turning off their video for the second half of it. And I found it much more difficult to actively listen to their responses and know when I needed to step in and just, it felt more difficult. I would not take a phone deposition. If I have the option between a phone depot and a Zoom depot, I will take a Zoom depot every day of the week and twice on Sunday. I need to be able to see what that person is doing. I think that I just have trust issues and I don't trust that they don't look shifty. If someone else is in the room with them, are they having some sort of you know body language conversation with them that I am now not a part of that? And will that affect their answers? I want to know, for example, if I'm taking a deposition and this happened just recently, I was taking a deposition via Zoom of a corporate representative and the defendant that we've sued and You know, there were times where I would ask a question and the witness would look at her attorney. Yeah. Would just immediately look at her attorney, you know, as if the answer is written on the attorney's face. I don't know if that person has like a whiteboard that she's writing the answers on. I don't know. But those are kinds of cues that you can't pick up on phone interviews. And maybe part of this that we should also keep in mind is that as attorneys, our jobs are a little different than what Kate Murphy's job is as a journalist. She really is just after a fact-finding mission. We are also trying to find facts, but we're also trying to build our case. There's a little bit more argument that goes into what we're trying to do. So that's something to keep in mind. What I thought was particularly interesting about her conversation about Zoom and what we might lose is not so much about depositions, but it makes me nervous about calling a witness via Zoom for trial. Exactly. So I am listening and I am gathering very much that I don't know that there's any way around continuing Zoom depositions. In fact, I mean, even before COVID, 
I think we were all doing a lot of video depositions. Now we just call them Zoom depots, but they were all the same. They were always video depositions. The platform's changed mildly. I don't want to go back to do that either. But, and I'm thinking about like our clients. I like it when our clients are deposed via Zoom because it's less intimidating to them. So I agree. And I think that Kate Murphy's, again, she was not writing this in terms of depositions for lawyers. She was just saying in general. And I still believe that if I have a weekly call, which I have a weekly call, and we used to do it before COVID, we just did the phone call. And that worked great. And now we do it by Zoom. And I'm constantly obsessed with looking at myself, looking at other people. I'm just not as good a listener on Zoom for something where I'm not taking the lead. Maybe it's my own problem. I don't know. I got to work on it. But for trials, forget it. Never, 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 never going to do a Zoom trial. And it's not so much, I'm not even as worried about, you know, how do I put a witness on via Zoom or whatever. It's the jury. And if they're watching a Zoom and knowing what I know about how I am on a Zoom call, they're not listening. They are not listening. So that is a never, no go. I don't care. Not going to happen. But another thing, speaking of juries listening, Another area of study that is in the book is not only how to be a good listener, but how do you speak in a way that promotes good listening, right? So opening, closing, that type of thing. And Kate cites conversational expectations. There are four maxims for that. And what she's talking about is four ways to speak that promotes the best type of listening. And this comes from a British language philosopher and theorist, Paul Grice. This is kind of his work, and she cites that. And there's four. The maxim of quality, which is people who are listening expect the speaker to be truthful. The maxim of quantity. Listeners expect the information that they're given is not too much, not overwhelming. The maxim of relation, the expectation of relevant and logical flow And then the maxim of manner is the expectation the speaker is relatively brief, orderly, and unambiguous. And if that's not the best four maxims for a closing argument or an opening statement, I don't know what is. And one of the things she talks about is air traffic controllers are mandated by federal law only to do their job for an hour and a half before a break. And I mean, those people have to be good listeners, right? Because they're landing planes and lives depend on it. And I'm thinking, you know, I mean, an hour and a half, I think the point of that is science tells us an hour and a half is about all somebody can be a good listener if they're all they're doing is sitting there and listening. And I think we got to keep that in mind. But the truthfulness or the quality maxim is so key. And I think we all try very hard to make sure that what we're saying to a jury is truthful, not only because, I don't know, it's the right thing to do, but also because you could get smacked with it later. I think we've lived with all of those in our minds, but setting them out like that has really been helpful to me. I like those four principles a lot. My plan now is the next time I have to draft either an opening or a closing or shoot, the next time I'm in a motion hearing, the next time I have to argue a motion in front of the judge, I am going to go through my notes or my outline and just make sure, am I hitting these four principles? Am I saying what I want clearly? Am I giving enough information, but also not too much? And am I presenting it in a way that is clearly communicating whatever my wants are to my listener? Agreed. Also, 
those four maxims allow us, if we are the listener, I mean, it teaches us to be a better speaker, I think, but also if we're the listener and you're missing one or multitude of those maxims, it's permission to stop listening. I don't have to stay in a conversation where I feel like the person that is speaking to me is not being truthful or going on and on and on and on or talking about things that are clearly not relevant to anything at all. So it kind of gives this notion of permission, not to be rude or anything, but to not feel like I'm being rude if I steer the conversation otherwise. My only thought on that is the world is so political now and there's people who believe one thing and people, you know, facts are optional, but it seems like (laughs) everyone thinks that what they're saying is the truth. So what happens when like the person who is listening doesn't think what you're saying is truthful, but it is, you know, like, I don't know how this fits in into like persuading people. I would think maybe that's when you turn on the support response and maybe say, if someone tells you something, you're like, I just don't believe that. Maybe you say, why do you think that? Or can you, you help really me? want to cross-examine them is what you I want guess to do. Maybe that's what I'm going to say. How can you help me understand that better? I make people define terms for me. Oh, listen to that. Okay. Oh, yeah. Maybe we're Wait, very, is this like at a cocktail very, party or oh, at a depot? Oh, no. This is at like family reunions. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, genuinely, if someone and I disagree very greatly on a topic, I will listen to them and as they are using certain terminology, especially we are in a particularly politically charged environment, I will ask them to define terms for me. Because also, one, it may prove that they don't actually know what they're talking about, which that probably happens about 75% of the time. But the other 25% is I realize we have different definitions of whatever phrase or terminology they may be using. And it's a good opportunity for me to say, okay, maybe we actually have a little bit more in common than we realize, but we have different definitions for this particular word or this particular topic that we're talking about. And so this kind of goes back to just being a good listener. And not everything is an immediate fight. You can kind of, by asking questions, try to come to some common ground. At the end of the day, though, what I've really learned as I've gotten older is that not every fight is worth having. Not every person is worth my time. And if someone has a deeply held belief, I'm not going to change their mind in one conversation. So I'm going to save both of our time and I'm going to save my energy and just bow out. (laughs) So that's how I survive cocktail parties (laughs) and family reunions. So I think the takeaway today is Like most things in life, to get better at them, it takes practice. After reading this book, again, I thought I was a pretty darn good listener before reading this book, but certainly it's been top of mind, as Erica would say. And whether it was during a conversation I had just last night at a cocktail party or yesterday in a deposition, I've been thinking more about how to be a better listener and keeping in mind that I'm convinced being a better listener makes me a better lawyer. Maybe a better person, but definitely a better lawyer. So hopefully our listeners have taken away that being better listeners is good for them, including continuing to listen to our podcast. So (laughs) thank you again for joining us today. You can leave your comments for us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And stay tuned for our next episode. Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, Elizabeth, 
and Megan would love to hear from you at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And if you love Heels in the Courtroom, check out the other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. John Simon's The Jury Is Out podcast focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice and dive into the legal drama behind America's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription in Results Don't Lie. Subscribe today.